But isn't it amazing, really amazing, how that, uh, that song that we all know so well is able to capture the very essence of the sweetness of the gospel, that through our study of Romans we've been able to saturate ourselves these many months, and we will continue, Lord willing, with that saturation and the good news as we move further into chapter 8 this evening. I'll start again at verse 1 since I only covered that briefly last week, and read, God willing, through verse 11. So, I'd ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The good news of the gospel, of God's gospel, from God's Word. Please be seated. Let us pray. Again, O Lord, as we come to this majestic treatment of the work of Christ through which we are redeemed. We pray that the Holy Spirit would intercede for us because of our weakness, that we may understand these things that are set forth here for our edification, that this may not simply be an exercise of tickling our minds with knowledge, but rather that these things may Awaken our souls 
to praise, to thanksgiving of the glory, of the mercy that we have received in Christ. For we pray in His name. Amen. Last week, as I mentioned in our conclusion of our study of the end of chapter 7, I looked at that conclusion not only to chapter 7, but to all that had preceded it in the first verse of chapter 8, where Paul declares, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, comma. I just remind you that what the announcement is from the apostle is that those who are Christians have been placed beyond the reach of the condemnation of God. That condemnation refers to the last judgment. It occurs to the, or it refers to the outpouring of God's wrath in what the Scriptures describe as damnation. Now, I realize we live in a time where people live a, look askance at any idea of wrath in God, and believe that there is no room for damnation whatsoever, but when we do that, it's like people who whistle walking past graveyards. There is damnation that is certain that is to come. And the Latin text here, in fact, translates the Greek that is, the English renders as condemnation by the word damnationis. So clearly there is the Latin to our English language. So we could render the text this way, now therefore there is no damnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, comma. Now what follows after the comma may raise a bit of a question to us, at least for a moment. There's no condemnation or damnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, comma, who do not walk according to the flesh, comma, but according to the Spirit. Now, we've already mentioned this problematic theology that has found its way widely in the Christian world today that teaches that people can be in Christ and not be filled with the Spirit and be carnal Christians. That is, even though they are in Christ, their lives are still defined by carnality because Christ has not been received as Lord. He's been received as Savior, and all one has to do to be saved is to accept Jesus as Savior. And it is a good thing, a preferred thing, and we hope that those who embrace Christ as Savior will at some point later on embrace Him as Lord. But this theology teaches that it's perfectly possible, in fact, happens with some degree of regularity, that people come to that first stop on the way to final salvation of confessing Jesus, receiving Him as Lord. They are there justified, they are saved, but they remain carnal. The self is still on the throne of their lives. They are not filled with the Spirit, and so there is no significant change at all in the constituent nature of their lives, but their status has changed eternally. They are now redeemed in Christ, even though they remain carnal. 
as I say, that's a deadly theology and creates in many, many people a false sense of security by giving assurance to people who are not Christians that in fact that they are Christians and have nothing to fear. Now somebody could look at the punctuation of this verse here where it says, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, comma, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. That is, the terms could be restrictive by saying that condemnation has been removed from all Christians who are not carnal Christians. That's one way we could read the uh, punctuation, and the idea then would be saying that condemnation has been removed from the Spirit-filled Christian, but not from the carnal Christian. The carnal Christian, even though he is in Christ, is still exposed to the threat of damnation and or condemnation. But that's really not anywhere close to what the Apostle is teaching here in this text. What he's saying here is that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because those who are in Christ Jesus do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The assumption here of the Apostle is anybody who's truly converted, anybody who is in Christ, and anybody in whom Christ dwells is a person who does not walk according to the flesh, but who walks according to the Spirit. So the idea of a so-called carnal Christian is as far away from the apostolic teaching as we could get. Now we read then that Paul says in verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now here again there's this confusing use of the term law, where sometimes in the epistle Paul uses the term law to mean principle. Other times he uses the term law to refer to the moral standards by which God judges us. And in this case, he uses in the next breath the idea of the law as of the standards, but in the first instance, he's talking about the laws of principles. He says there are two principles at work here. The first principle is the principle of the spirit of life in Jesus Christ. That principle of life in Jesus Christ is that which makes us free from that life or principle that is defined by sin and death. When you are in Christ, you live life. When you are not in Christ, you operate by the principle of sin. It is sin that defines your existence, and the natural consequence of that sin that defines your existence is death. Now he switches his meaning of the use of the word law in the text in verse 3, I believe, when he says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. Let me just pause there. Paul begins here by speaking 
of the impotency of the moral law, of the failure of the moral law at a certain place and at a certain point. What he's saying that the law does not do because it is incapable of doing is this. He says, for what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, and what is it that the law couldn't possibly do? It's what he's been laboring throughout this letter to the Roman Christians, is that the law can't save. The law cannot justify you. The law cannot redeem you. Again and again, it is as if the Holy Spirit knows how weak we are in our grasp of the gospel and how like dogs returning to their vomit, we keep falling back to the idea that somehow we can justify ourselves by our behavior, by our good deeds, by our morality. And Paul has repeatedly come at this from every different angle to to get rid of that idea and brush off the spot where that idea once stood, saying, the law can't do it. It's impotent. Not only does the law not save you, beloved, but the reason it doesn't save you that Paul is arguing here is because it can't. It doesn't have the power. Now, again, Paul's not being critical of the law. This weakness is not the law's fault. The reason why the law can't redeem you is because the law cannot redeem those people who are in the flesh. And people who are in the flesh are incapable of obeying the law. And so, when people who are in the flesh look to the law as a means of their salvation, they are exercising futility and reaching for an impossible dream. It can't happen. But what the law could not do, see the contrast here, what the law was unable to do, what the law was incapable of doing, God did. Now, there, in a nutshell, is the gospel. What the law can't do, God can't do. What your morality can never achieve, God can achieve. What your behavior and your performance is incapable of attaining, God can attain it for you. That's the gospel. I can't, He can. It's that simple. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. How did He do it? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. What the law couldn't do, God could do, and He did it by sending His own Son. Now, for a moment. I'm going to ask you to latch on to that idea, because later on in this chapter, Paul's going to talk about a different kind of sonship. 
that sonship that comes by adoption. But we notice here he introduces the concept of sonship, but he's talking about God's only begotten Son, the monogenes, the Son from all eternity, even Jesus Christ. What the law couldn't do, God could do it, because what the law couldn't do was the law couldn't give you Christ. But God gives you Christ. God did it by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Let's be careful here. Notice what Paul does not say. God did it by sending His Son in the sarks, in the condition of corruption. God did it by sending His Son as a sinner to replace us. No, no, no. Notice how careful Paul is when he says that he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, not in the identity of sinful flesh. It's homoi, not homo, for those who are students of the Council of Nicaea, that he is like us, the author of Hebrew tells us, in all respects except one, that He is without sin. So when God seeks to redeem His people, He sends His own Son in a human dimension by way of incarnation. But in the incarnation, all that is proper to humanity is given to the human nature of our Redeemer except the transfer of sin. Jesus is born without original sin. Jesus is born as Adam was before the fall. Jesus is is not in prison and in bondage to a corrupt nature at the moment of His arrival into this world. He comes in the likeness of sinful flesh, and He comes because of sin. And he condemned sin in the flesh. That Christ came in the flesh, in human personage. And as a human being, he condemns that sin that binds us by taking it upon himself. He condemns sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here, in language that's slightly different from what Paul has been using elsewhere in the epistle, is he's describing the cross. He's describing the work of Christ in expiation. When Christ goes to the cross in our place. Sin is condemned. That cup that he wrestled with at Gethsemane was filled with the wrath of God, the wrath that was directed against sin. And Jesus drinks it. He accepts the imputation of my sin and your sin to Himself. 
so that when he goes to the cross, the last thing he's worried about is the punitive treatment at the hands of the Romans. He goes to the cross to receive the punishment for sin by the Father, that our sins may may be removed from us. That's the gospel. What happens in justification is that when God pronounces us just in Jesus Christ, with that pronouncement of being just, He removes our sin. There is expiation. He takes our sin away, puts it in the sea of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, He removes our transgressions from us. And that's what Christ does. He, God did this. The law can't do it. The law exposes your sin. The law defines your sin. The law imposes the burden of the curse upon your sin. What the law could never accomplish for you was to get rid of it, to remove it from you. Only God has the power to remove sin. I can't do it. We are like so many Lady Macbeths with blood on our hands where we try every kind of cleansing agent to remove that stain. But the spot cannot be removed. There is no earthly power to make you clean. I can't make myself clean. I can't make up for it. If I sinned over here, I can't balance the scales of justice by doing a good work over here. The blot, the sin, is indelible to all human efforts. Only God can remove your sin. And that's what the gospel is. That's why He sent His Son, that in His Son there's no condemnation for His people There is condemnation for their sin, and it's condemned in Christ and is removed from you. God takes it out of the books and transfers to you the righteousness of His Son. You know, I don't know how far this new perspective of Paul is going to go in our culture. New fads come up every year. They last five years, ten years, and then you don't hear much about them. But I'm sorry to say that this idea of the new perspective is gaining more and more momentum. And beneath all of the academic interest in it is lurking at the heart of this controversy the whole idea of being justified by somebody else's righteousness by being reconciled to God, not just simply to covenant status, but to eternal status with God, whether it's accomplished through an alien righteousness, somebody else's righteousness, or not. And I'm telling you, beloved, if somebody starts to talk to you about the new perspective, they got a great new idea how nobody really understood Paul's doctrine of justification until these fellows came along, Run for your life. 
because that which is absolutely non-negotiable about the gospel is at the heart of this controversy, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. That's what Paul's talking about here. Sin is condemned in the cross. Our sin to Him is righteousness to us. My only hope in heaven and earth is the righteousness of Christ. You take away that righteousness from me, and all you leave me with is my own. Then you've left me in that position where not only condemnation can reach me, it most certainly will reach me. And that's why if we have to die on this hill, let us be willing to shed our blood if necessary for the sake of the gospel. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now Paul continues to set forth the contrast between life in the Spirit and life in the flesh, between the old man and the new man, what we've been looking at for the last few weeks. He gives us some more insights by describing more characteristics of what it means to be in the flesh and what it means to be in the Spirit. Let's listen carefully to these descriptive terms. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. The first thing we see that describes the unregenerate person who remains altogether in the flesh is a mindset. And whenever you're asking yourself the question, am I in the kingdom, am I a Christian, or am I a pretender, that's the first place you look. What's your mindset? What's the focus of your life? What do you think about all the time? Are you preoccupied with goals, ambitions, desires, and appetites of this world, of the flesh, of sin? Is that defined, your thought process, your mindset? I'm not saying, do you ever think about things of the world? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying, is that your mindset? Is that what your focus is? Is that what defines who you are as a human being? You know, I don't know where I'm going to be a year from now. At least 25 times today, my wife said to me, happy anniversary, honey. And I said, happy anniversary. We turned the clock back 46 years, and, you know, before the second service, or actually after the second service, we were having lunch, and Vesta looked at her clock, and she said, we weren't married quite yet. The service had started, but they hadn't pronounced this man and wife yet. And I said, that's right, happy anniversary. She said, yes, happy anniversary. And so, we've had a wonderful day 
But when you have an anniversary, you wonder, well, what am I going to be doing next year at this time? Am I still going to be here? I don't know. I don't know where you're going to be a year from now. I don't know where you're going to be 10 years from now. But what I really care about is where you're going to be 100 years from now. And where I'm going to be 100 years from now. Because one thing I know for sure, I'm going to be somewhere 100 years from now. And so are you. And if it is my mindset to spend this brief sojourn on this planet focused merely on the things of the flesh, then where I will be a hundred years from now will be in perdition. But if my mindset now, if my mind is concerned about the things of God, the things of the Spirit of God, of the truth of God, of the sweetness of God, if I care about these things, then I know that a hundred years from now, I will be enjoying the brightness of His glory without interruption in eternal felicity. But it's so easy to fix our minds on the things of this world that we go through our whole lives missing the things of eternity. Where's your mindset? Where's your heart set? Where's your treasure? Those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Here's the second thing that marks carnality. To be carnally minded is death. You set your mind on the things of this world. There is a consequence to that, an inescapable consequence to that, the only possible consequence to that is death. The very thing that you'll do every, anything in your power to escape is death. But it's the only possible consequence if your mind is fixed on the things of this world. To be carnally minded, Paul said, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Carnal, carnal mindedness, death. Spiritual mindedness, life, and peace. Why? Why is that? Well, he answers it for us very clearly, doesn't he? Because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Now, again, you repeat a lie often enough, people will begin to believe it. Not only to believe it, but to defend it as a truism. And the idea that permeates our culture today is that there is no war between man and God. We don't hate God. Sinners may be indifferent. They may not be excited about God, but they certainly don't hate Him. 
and by all matter of certitude, we can rest assured that God doesn't hate them. We hear the platitudes, God hates the sinner, I mean the sin, but He doesn't hate the sinner. God loves everybody unconditionally. That's the biggest lie of our day. He does not. Let me tell you something. On the last judgment, God doesn't send sins to hell. He sends sinners to hell. And though even sinners enjoy the blessings of the providential love of God, the filial love of God is not their desert. And the Scripture is graphic when it describes God's attitude towards the impenitent, carnally-minded person. God abhors them. Now, isn't that strange? I mean, you don't hear that. Nobody talks like that anymore, except God in His Word. If you set your mind on the things of this world, it's death. Why? Because the carnal mind is at enmity with God. God is the supreme obstacle that every person faces between their desires of the flesh and reaching happiness from them, because God is always standing in the way. Because the life of the flesh is life lived, not in neutrality before God, but in opposition to God. This is what the apostle is saying. To be carnally minded is to be at enmity against God. I mentioned this before. I, I was invited to speak at a university once, to the Atheist Club. And they wanted me to give an argument for the existence of God, which I did. And they were intellectually intrigued. And at the end, I said, I'll, I'll be happy to continue to discuss these philosophical arguments for the existence of God with you, as long as you want to discuss them. But you have to know where I'm coming from. First of all, I don't think your problem is an intellectual one. I think it's a moral one. I think your problem is not that you don't know whether God exists. You know very well that God exists. Your problem is not that you don't know God. Your problem is that you don't like Him. In fact, that's way too weak of a statement. The reality is you hate Him. That's as close as I've ever come to being tarred and feathered, I think. <laughs> I mean, seriously, there was this paroxysm of rage that came from, what do you mean? We don't, you know, I mean, thinks thou dost protest too much. But I said, if the Word of God is true, that's exactly how it describes your position, that you don't want God in your thinking. You want to get God out of your mind and out of your lives because your mind is fixed on the things of this world. You have a mindset that is utterly incompatible with the things of God. So you would like to banish God from the universe as far as you could get Him away from because you don't like Him. There's enmity. He's your sworn enemy. And not only that, if God 
were to make himself vulnerable before you this night, you would take his life and murder him in cold blood. That's how much you hate him. People will never admit to that. The carnal mind is enmity against God because it is not subject to the law of God. Why do we hate God by nature? Why in our original state of corruption? Do we have a mindset of the flesh? Why is it that we don't want God in our thinking? Why is it that we have what Paul earlier called reprobate minds? It's because of His law. We're at war with God because we don't want to be subject to the law of God. You just read the paper. 15 minutes a day. Listen to the news 15 minutes a day. Look at all of the ethical issues that our country's embroiled in day in and day out. And people don't want Christianity mentioned. They don't want the church involved in anything ethical because nobody's going to say to me that what I'm doing is wrong. I have the right to do what I want to do. Who gave you that right? Certainly not the law of God. And every time we want to do our wills, express our appetites, live out our preferences, right into the wall of the law of God, we run every time. And like Reagan to Gorbachev, we want to say, Mr. God, tear down that wall. Get rid of that law so that I can do what I want to do with no condemnation. Why are we the enmity with God? Because it's not subject to the law of God, but it's worse than that. The reason why the carnal mind is not subject to the law of God is because it can't be. Here we are again. Paul has made this point again and again in this epistle. He keeps bringing us back to our natural state of moral inability. Original sin has such a powerful grip on our soul and on our wills that in our flesh we are simply not able to do the things of God. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and the flesh profits nothing. It profits nothing because it can't profit anything. So then, here's the conclusion of this little section. Those who are in the flesh, that is, in this state of original sin, unconverted, unregenerate, those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. They can't obey the law of God. They can't do the will of God. And the worst verdict is they can't do anything to please God. Do you know how many times we make decisions and, and do things because we don't want to displease people that we know, people that we love, our parents, our spouses, our friends? We want our friends to be pleased with us, don't we? We want them to take pleasure in how we are and how we behave. What if I said to you, there's nothing you could possibly do in this world to please your parents, to please your friends, to please your children, to please your spouse? Wouldn't that be a, a very, very discouraging announcement? But take it to the next realm. If you are not a Christian, there is nothing you can do nothing to please God. The only response you will ever have from God, as long as you are in the flesh, is a response of His displeasure, which is a euphemism for wrath. Now, remember the context here. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for those who walk according to the Spirit. But, beloved, for those who do not walk according to the Spirit, for those who are not in Christ Jesus, there is nothing but condemnation. That's the only possible consequence there can be to a life that is defined by a mindset of the flesh, where the mind is at war with God. When the mind is opposed to the law of God, where the person does not want to be ruled by God and is in such bondage that he can't even begin to change this. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot, they're not able to please God. Now, Many, many years ago in Pennsylvania, where I taught a Bible study every Tuesday morning to some folks from around the different communities, I once made the comment <clears throat> that my favorite word in the Bible is the word but. It's the word that gives me relief when my life is set against the law of God and and as I see myself being measured by the standard of God's righteousness, and I slip deeper and deeper and deeper into despair because I can't begin to measure up, and then just when I'm ready to jump off the bridge, relief comes with that word, but. Paul writes to the Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy. That's the thing that defines the Christian's life is that at one point in your life, God said, wait a minute, but there's something else. And what does Paul say here? But you, 
He's writing to the Christians at Rome. You're not in the flesh. You're not in that condition that I've just described so painfully. But you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the only necessary condition He gives here. If you want to know, am I in the flesh or am I in the Spirit? Paul doesn't say that you are not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit if you're filled with the Spirit, if you have the victorious Christian life. No. You're not in the flesh. You're in the Spirit if one condition is met if the Spirit of God dwells in you. And this is where our understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is so vitally necessary to have a biblical understanding of what Christianity is all about. You cannot be a Christian unless the Holy Spirit regenerates you. Unless God, the Holy Spirit, changes your heart of stone into a heart of flesh, unless that supernatural work is done, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man is born of the Spirit, he can't even see the kingdom of God, let alone enter it. And every person that the Spirit regenerates, the Spirit enters and dwells. Every person the Spirit regenerates, he indwells everyone. He indwells. He gives the guarantee of future redemption. Every person that the Holy Spirit indwells, He seals against the day of judgment. So, in a sense, when you're born of the Spirit, you're signed, sealed, and delivered. Oh, you still fight with ongoing sin. We've already looked at that in chapter 7. But if the Spirit is in you, not if, it's, not if you're full of the Spirit, not if you're filled to the tip, top of your head with the Spirit, but if He's in you at all, you're not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, and you are in Christ. And these blessed promises apply to you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, Paul goes on, he is not his. If you're not indwelt by the Holy Ghost, if you haven't been reborn by the Holy Ghost, you don't belong to Christ. But if you do belong to Christ, you have been born of the Spirit. You are indwelt by the Spirit, and you now have been set free to live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, Paul says more about this in the verses that I read but haven't finished, but that's all right. Rome wasn't built in a day. I never promised to finish this book in any period of time, so we'll see what the rest of those uh, explanations are, God willing the next time that we come together. Now, let's pray. Father, 
we haven't begun to understand the depth of our moral weakness, our natural inability. We've never come to grips with our basic nature being at enmity with you, that how we lived in times past with a mindset that focused our attention on the things of this world until you awakened us from that dungeon and caused the chains to fall off when you gave us eyes to see and a heart to embrace with affection the sweetness of Christ. We know that that was not of the flesh, but was accomplished only through the power and the presence of your Spirit. Comfort our souls tonight with the assurance that we are in the Spirit because the Spirit dwells in us and that we belong to Christ. For we ask it in His name. Amen.